the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Chief Warrant Officer Bill Darling, MMM CD, former Regimental Sergeant Major of the 48th Highlanders of Canada, former Brigade Sergeant Major of 32 Canadian Brigade Group, former Reserve Sergeant Major of Land Force Central Area. Being in the stands for the presentation of new colors in 1991 while they're trooping the old colors and we're waiting to go on with the new colors and my pager goes off. And I look at the pager and then the rest of the color party looks at me and they said, what does it say? And I said, the contractions are 20 minutes apart. Welcome to Canadian Forces Base Borden. Bienvenue à la base des Forces Canadiennes Borden. If you know the local you are calling, begin dialing now. No, wait, wait. I'm still here. I'm here. Okay. Whew. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. I just got my leave pass signed from CFB Borden. I've been assigned to Op Provision as the platoon commander for the security force, and we're turning Camp Blackdown, Cadet Camp Blackdown, into an interim lodging site for Syrian refugees. So I'm trying to find time to edit as best as I can and get these shows produced for you. However, I am now in an operational deployment, uh, domestic operation, op provision, and I'm working with the very good people at Canadian Forces Base Borden to support the Syrian refugee crisis. Once again, I have the great opportunity to have an excellent episode. This one's going to be a little bit longer than perhaps what you're accustomed to. My guest does like to talk. He's got the gift of the gap. So that's a good thing when we're talking about an audio podcast. We do want people to come on the show and talk. And that's what our guest does today. Our guest is a member of the 48th Highlanders of Canada, and it is very fitting that this is the first numerically significant episode that I have produced, episode 48, and I definitely wanted to have a 48th Highlander on the show for episode 48. I could have had Emmett Kelly on for episode 41, I could have had myself on for episode 32, I could have had Colonel Conrad on for episode 25, even Captain Terrell on for episode 25. However, it didn't dawn on me to line up the episode numbers with the numbers of numbered units or numbered organizations. So it'll get very interesting when we get to episode 400 and on, because then all the Air Force people will want to jump on board. I want to talk very briefly about the 48th Highlanders of Canada and their significant presence in the city of Toronto. The 48th Highlanders were raised in the Toronto area, and for a period they occupied the former University Avenue Armory. The Great Armory, smack dab in the middle of the city of Toronto, very legendary armory. When that armory was demolished or decommissioned, the 48th Highlanders transitioned over to Fort York Armory and... Many people don't know this, but they basically, to use a Navy term, they hot-bunked with the Toronto Scottish. So what would happen on a 48th Highlander parade night, the CO would occupy the office of the CO of the Toronto Scottish. And then the DCO and the RSM and the members of the company would each occupy the lines of the Toronto Scottish as they were waiting for a new home. Then eventually, Moss Park Armory was built, once again, in the heart of the city of Toronto at the intersection of Queen Street and Jarvis. And the cohabitation relationship between the Toronto Scottish and the 48th Highlanders came to an end. 
The 48th Highlanders have been in Moss Park Armory since the opening day, and they are also a very significant presence in the City of Toronto. A couple of things that you can always expect to see is the City of Toronto's Remembrance Day service. I'm not talking about the provincial one up at Queen's Park, I'm talking about the city one, the one with the mayor, and the 40th Highlanders mount the guard on the cenotaph in the City of Toronto. So they provide the sentries for the Remembrance Day service, and the other thing they do is they dress in period dress. So we have a Boer War soldier, a current day soldier, a World War One soldier, a World War Two soldier. And some of them are wearing kilts. Some of them are wearing tartan trues. It's a very significant part of the Remembrance Day service that takes place every year. The other significant impact that the 40th Highlanders of Canada has in the city of Toronto is that they play on the ice. And not only do they play, but the band, the regimental band of the 40th Highlanders of Canada marches and plays at the opening game, the home opening game of the Toronto Maple Leafs every single year. So those are two places where you can always see the members of the 48th Highlanders doing their very, very best. The 48th Highlanders also have a cenotaph at the top of Queen's Park Circle. And I can recall as the RSM of the Toronto Scottish Regiment and any previous appointment to that, marching past their cenotaph, the band would change from whatever tune they were playing to the regimental march of the 48th Highlanders. They would play Highland Laddie as we would observe our eyes left as we would pass before their monument at the top of Queen's Park Circle during our annual church parade. As a member of the Toronto Scottish, formerly, it was always interesting to say, I'm in the Toronto Scottish Regiment, and people say, well, does that mean you're in the 48th Highlanders? I'm like, no, I'm not in the 48th Highlanders. I'm in the Toronto Scottish, completely different unit. It was always something you always have to answer as a member of the Toronto Scottish is being prepared to answer that question. My guest today is a very good friend, Chief Warrant Officer Bill Darling, who has served as the RSM of the 40th Highlanders. He has served as my predecessor as the Brigade Sergeant Major of 32 Canadian Brigade Group. He went on to be the Land Force Central Area Reserve Sergeant Major, and then he finished off his term at the Canadian Army Training Doctrine System as the Reserve Sergeant Major there. The most interesting or most significant part of this episode is that when I recorded this episode, Bill was wearing the rank of Chief Warrant Officer. And legitimately, lawfully, he was in transition to his commissioning as a captain. However, on paper, and he didn't know this at the time during the recording, he was actually substantively a captain, and that rank was presented to him shortly after this recording. However, as far as his file was concerned, as far as the computers were concerned, he was a captain. However, when we recorded the episode, the message had not gotten to him yet. So this episode is with Chief Warrant Officer Bill Darling and not Captain Bill Darling, because as he and I both knew it at the time of the recording, he was still a Chief Warrant Officer and the paperwork had not reached him yet. For much of the episode, Bill talks about family both regimental family, the extended regimental family, and his own family, his children, his wife, and his father, his uncles, his grandfather, and a lot of family thoughts. One of the stories, which I'm not going to spoil for you during the intro here, one of the stories brought back a memory of myself. It just one of the phenomenon of the show, you listen to the guest and you have to put in your own story as you're listening to the guest. And as I'm listening to Bill, my thoughts are wandering and I'm remembering something that happened to me. And it was when I was a company sergeant major with the Toronto Scottish Regiment, we were gearing up for our annual church parade, the Toronto Scottish. 
and we were about to leave Fort York Armory to go to Queen's Park Circle. And my wife called me, and she says she's sick. She's very sick. She can't take care of our young children. And I believe my oldest son was old enough to get around on his own, maybe five years old, and my youngest son was still in a stroller, maybe two or three, not enough to do a significant amount of walking. And I knew that my wife wouldn't call me on Remembrance Day and tell me that she was sick and order me home if she wasn't really that bad. Like, this is something that I have to take very seriously. So I immediately went to the RSM, Chief Warrant Officer Kevin Jr., and I said, sorry, I am not on parade today. I gotta go home. And with that, I turned on my heels, got in my car, drove home, and immediately took care of the business of taking care of my family. When I got home, my wife was sick. She just wanted to go to sleep. She didn't need me to actually take care of her, but what she did need was to not have to take care of our boys. So what did I do? Well, I was already shaven and showered, so I threw on my suit, threw on my tie, threw the boys in the car, grabbed the stroller on the way out the door, immediately turned around from Georgetown, Ontario, turned around, went straight back to Queen's Park Circle, and brought my boys to their very very first Toronto Scottish Regiment Church Parade and they participated in the whole church parade. I was dressed in civilian attire. The boys were there alongside. They got a look at the whole event. When I got back to Fort York Armory, I started to get a little bit of grief from the RSM for abandoning ship and people basically looked at him and said, what are you talking about? He was still there. The parade still occurred. He had to take care of his kids. Give the guy a break. And as you listen to the episode, you'll see exactly why those thoughts came to my mind as I was interviewing my very good friend, Bill Darling. Here's the episode with Chief Warrant Officer, now Captain, Bill Darling. Chief Warrant Officer Darling, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me this evening, Mike. So Bill, you and I first met when I was a company sergeant major in the Toronto Scottish Regiment, and you were the 32 Canadian Brigade Group Battle School Sergeant Major, but we were both on the same parade field at Varsity Stadium in Toronto for the consecration and presentation of colours for the 48th Highlanders of Canada. That was a memorable evening in 1991. It was the regiment's 100th anniversary. It was truly a spectacular night. It was one of those memorable evenings that the culmination of a lot of rehearsals, practice, coordination, meetings, more rehearsals. (laughs) I remember the rehearsals. Oh, just all kinds of them. And what was interesting from my perspective is I was in the new color party. Right. I was the sergeant that carried the queen's color, the new queen's color, onto parade for the first time. So for the initial phase of the parade, myself and the other members of the new color party are not on parade. Right, absolutely. So we were up in the stands (laughs) watching the rehearsals. And we would sit back, and there were moments where we had a pretty good chuckle and a pretty good laugh, particularly at a well-loved warrant officer in the 48th Highlanders, who was our chief clerk by the name of Diane Love, who was one of the guard sergeant majors. I remember that. And you would get, as the individual guard sergeant majors would be calling out eyes front on the right dressing, and then you would get this very high-pitched, And we would joke around and say that she was telling the soldiers to get their hands out of the cookie jar. (laughs) We used to chuckle about that. But I think one of the things that I remember about that parade, and I certainly remember yourself and other members of the Toronto Scottish coming out to help us with that parade, were also members of the Governor General's Horse Guards. Yes. 
coming out and providing their mounted troop and certainly elements of the service battalion providing military police to help with crowd control and coordination and that kind of thing. So while the key focus of that night might have been on the 48th Highlanders and the 100th anniversary and presentation and consecration of new colors, I think one of the things that I really took away from that was the fact that to coin an Americanism, we're an army of one. We're not an army that stands alone. We're not an army of just one, but rather we're all one. If yes. that kind of makes sense, we're absolutely. It's very much a team aspect, and that was sort of other than some of the collective training exercises, the milcons that we'd been on, where you still kind of operated on your own. One of the first times where you really had a large group pulled together for one single goal. So a very memorable evening, and I'm glad you remember it because I certainly do. Well, that's the thing. I remembered it in such great detail that when it was my turn to conduct a presentation of colors, and not for one regiment but for two, I drew back a lot on the lessons that I had learned from the 40th Highlanders of Canada on that event, which would have been maybe 15, almost 20 years earlier. Yeah, and I think that's one of the big things is that I'm not going to phrase this quite correctly, but people say that you're a slave to your experiences, and I don't <laughs> think slave is quite the right word to use. We're certainly influenced and we're certainly molded by our experiences from the past, be they good or bad. Right. One of the things that we did for part of the planning for that parade was to review videotape of the Bermuda Regiment. Right, yes. Doing presentation of new colors. So that was part of that whole experience of putting that parade together is to reach out. And I'm certainly glad that you were able to use some of your experiences to pull that up to your current assignments or your current postings with your various units that you've served with, particularly the Toronto Scottish, to be able to say, hey, we can use that previous experience to help make this a success. And that's what's important is the success that comes out of it. Absolutely. And this coming May, I'm going to see a presentation and consecration of colors from a different point of view as the Gray and Simcoe Foresters are receiving their new colors. And I'll be on parade as an officer this time as opposed to an NCM or as the RSM. Yeah, it's a very different perspective, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I certainly remember going from the ranks to things like being right marker, to being the left guide because you were a master corporal, then being a sergeant. And back in the day when I came up as a young sergeant, you were a platoon 2IC. You weren't a section commander. Our section commanders were all corporals and master corporals. Right. And sergeants were platoon 2ICs. They weren't called platoon warrants. We called them platoon 2ICs. So all of a sudden, you're out front of the soldiers. Then your officer falls in and now you're behind your soldiers. And it's an interesting perspective. Right. And then, of course, if you happen to progress to becoming a quartermaster, you're on the flanks. Sergeant Major, again, you're back out front of the company and then on the right flank. It's an interesting perspective. And I'm sure that having gained that experience has certainly helped you with the perspective of being an officer on parade. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And that's actually a pleasure that I'm hoping to get fairly soon. Right. If the big paper machine can churn its way through the way that it does, hopefully sooner rather than later. So, Bill, I sent you the questions in advance. Yes. Are you all set for the questions? Sure. And, Mike, I want to compliment you on the selection, the wording of those questions. 
because it has generated an awful lot of thought right. on my part. It's not the standard, what year did you join? Well, 1979. Yeah. And then on from, it was, why did you join? Yeah. What was the world like? I think they're very thought-provoking questions that I've enjoyed reflecting on these last couple of days to say, hmm, what was it like back then? <laughs> why did I join the military? Yeah. So it's been quite thought-provoking. Well, before I get into it, I do want to comment on that because one of the listener feedbacks I received is that when people are listening to the show, it becomes distracting because they're answering the questions themselves as listeners <laughs> and they're not paying attention to the guest because they want to give their answer. So let's get right into why you chose to join the Canadian Armed Forces. Okay. And that's an excellent way to phrase it because I did join the Canadian Army. I didn't join a particular regiment. I didn't join a particular trade. I was in high school. I was 16 years old. I think that we all kind of hang around with cliques when we're in school. Right. And certainly back when I was in school, it was the mid-70s. It was Montreal, the West Island of Montreal, a time that whether I was fully aware of it or not, there were some pretty significant changes happening in the political landscape in Canada, in particular in Quebec. René Lévesque and the Parti Québécois had just gotten elected, I believe in 1977, to form the provincial government. Right. And their ultimate goal, of course, was separation. And this was a very real possibility back then. We were going to have this referendum. There was uncertainty about would Quebec still be in Canada or not. In thinking back, I'm really not too sure how aware I was of the full implications of all of that. I was aware of it because I lived through part of it, but I'm not sure how aware I was. And the clique that I hung around with, in high school there were the guys and gals that listened to disco and I was a <laughs> rocker, I had long hair and I wore a jean jacket, Kodiak jeans and idolized Led Zeppelin and that kind of thing. Looking back, I like to think that I was probably smart enough that I could have done better than I did. But I, the guys I was hanging around with, we could be a little lazy, I think. <laughs> we could kind of take the easy way out. And it was a little bit more about the party than maybe getting down and actually doing the homework. I played sports as well, and I found that sports came fairly easily to me. I didn't have to practice a lot. I played hockey, basketball, a little bit of baseball, played a lot of soccer, and it all sort of came naturally. So I didn't really have to work hard. That, I think, created a bit of laziness on my part, I'll say. And I was in school, and I still remember the day. I can't tell you the date, but I remember the day. And I was walking down what they called the Great Hall. And back then, it seemed like it was this enormous corridor that ran down the center of our high school. And when I was back recently for a visit, it was about a quarter of the size that I thought that it was. <laughs> Isn't it always, though? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Well, in the middle of the Great Hall, they had this army display. It was probably February. They had a display set up. And it said, come and join the Canadian Army. Now, it happened to be for an artillery unit, but I didn't know what an artillery unit was. I just saw soldiers. I saw this, what I thought was a big cannon sitting there, and I kind of went, that looks like it might be fun. Now, I knew 
that my father had served in the military. My grandfather certainly had, as many kids of my generation, their grandfathers, our grandfathers, had served in the Second World War. Right. And I knew that I had an uncle that was involved with the military, but I really didn't know much about what my grandfather did. I didn't know a lot about what my uncle did. I mean, I lived in Quebec. He lived in Toronto. That was a world away at the time. <laughs> I knew my dad had been to Royal Military College, but I really didn't know what that was. I just knew and had heard some of the stories. And I kind of thought, Dad always talked about the military in a good, positive, sort of fun kind of way. And I was working as a busboy at a restaurant and was dreading the thought of working another summer at the restaurant. And I thought, you know what? This might be fun. Right. Let's give it a shot. So I actually ended up joining two field Royal Canadian Artillery in Montreal at the Côte de Neige Armories without really knowing what I was joining beyond the Army. So that's kind of how I ended up in the Army. Right. I didn't join a regiment. I didn't join a trade. I didn't join a unit. I joined the Army. just happened to be an artillery unit. Right. So having completed my training with them and had fun doing it, I quite thoroughly enjoyed it. Did you qualify as a gunner? I did. I am. <laughs> I am. I, I'm not sure anybody would let me near a gun today, but yes, I was a qualified gunner. Wow. And served in the unit and spent time down in Gagetown, live fire exercises, firing 105s and having a great time. And that was where I was first introduced to sentry duty in the middle of August on a cold cold, miserable, rainy night because we were live firing over a road. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it was hammering down rain, and it's probably about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'm standing out there in, well, the raincoats they used to issue to us yes. back in the <laughs> 1970s. I may as well have been wearing a garbage bag. I think I was just <laughs> as wet inside as outside when the snowflakes started coming down. Right. <laughs> I thought, boy, welcome to Gagetown. Welcome to the Army. But it was fun. I enjoyed it. Right. And when I came back, my father's company had been relocated. The proverbial story is my parents actually moved while I was in Gagetown, and I came home to find a different family living in the house. <laughs> now, I joke around with that. I did know my parents were moving. I did know all of that. But I sort of joke around and say, yeah, yeah, I was away on basic training and came home and knocked on the door, and there was a different family. Ironically enough, that guy was my math teacher. But yeah, I ended up staying with friends for a little while and then eventually followed my family down to Toronto, where the family had relocated. And once I got on the ground in Toronto, the plan was is that I would pick up my military career with 7 Toronto. Oh, right, of course. Royal Canadian Artillery as a gunner. And I made some comment that I was heading down to Moss Park and I was going to go see 7 Toronto. And my father said, well, if you're heading down to Moss Park, you should probably go see the 48th Highlanders. And I remember looking at my dad and saying, why on earth <laughs> would I, as a qualified gunner, go to an infantry unit, particularly one that wears skirts? <laughs> and he looked at me in a rather hard way and said, okay, let me explain your family history to you. And I went, okay, let's pull up a seat, explain this to me. Convince me why I should go become a 48th Highlander. And he proceeded to explain to me that the previous three generations of our family had served in the 48th Highlanders starting in 1896. 
Wow, look at that. And had virtually continuous service through all of that time. And by the time he finished explaining that, I said, okay, I guess I'm going to the 48th Highlanders and I'm putting on a kilt. <laughs> and that's how I ended up with the 48th, a trained gunner wearing a kilt. There we go. Well, I think you really flushed out the uh, follow-on questions about what was the world like when you joined and what you were like when you joined. Is there anything else you want to add to those two follow-on questions or should we just press on? Well, I think one interesting part about the world back then and certainly what the Canadian Army was like, it was the Cold War. Right. It was the USSR. It was the Iron Curtain, East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia. Certainly all of our exercises always talked about the 298th Motor Rifle Regiment and their (laughs) vanguard are going to come plowing into our defensive position in about six hours, so we've got to start digging. So it was very much Cold War oriented. In an interesting political twist today, it seems like we might be rolling back into the Cold War, what is old is new again. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So an interesting twist there. But I think the other thing, too, that had a very big impact on the Canadian Army, and in particular, the reserve aspect of the Army, was that we had Cyprus as an overseas peacekeeping mission. We had 4th Canadian Mechanized Brigade Group in Germany, with limited opportunities for reservists to be able to go over to Germany on things like the reforger exercises in August and September of every year. There were onesies and twosies that were deployed to various missions in places like the Golan Heights and the Sinai. So the operational tempo was very different than it is today. So you had much greater opportunities back then, not for deployments, but for coursing. Idle hands are the devil's work, as they say, and one way to keep soldiers from being idle, because we all know that when you've got soldiers being idle, the next thing you know, the MP reports start (laughs) flowing in, the MIR reports start flowing in. One way to avoid that is to keep soldiers busy. So you spent a lot more time on course. That honed and developed skills that I'm not sure that all of our soldiers have today. They have different skills, but I'm not sure that they have some of the specialty skills that we got back in the day, as it were. Yes, absolutely. So I think that's a bit of a twist that you don't quite see today that you saw back then. Now, Bill, during the introduction, we spoke about the presentation of colors to the 48th Highlanders in 1991. Yep. What is your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces? Oh, that one was a really interesting question. I've had the opportunity to serve on two different operations. One was domestic. It was op assistance, which was the Red River floods in Manitoba right, yeah. in 1997. That was certainly, in my mind, a very memorable moment. It was satisfying from a personal perspective because you knew that you were helping Canadians that were in distress. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Through no fault of their own, they were caught up in a natural, potentially catastrophic natural disaster. At that time, there was real fear that Winnipeg would be flooded. And they were talking about the fact that, well, we initially went out in an aid to the civil power role, that if the dikes failed and Winnipeg flooded, that Ottawa may very well have turned around and said to us, you're going to be there a lot longer than initially forecast. 
because you're now there in an assistance to law enforcement role right because Winnipeg could have gone under now at the time we didn't know one whether that would happen and two if it did how catastrophic it could have been this was before Hurricane Katrina and New Orleans and what happened all through Louisiana and the devastation that happened down there I'm not saying that the devastation would have been the same but there's certainly a great potential that it could have been so that could have been a very significant historical incident that could have had a long-lasting effect on Canadians, not just the Army, but on Canadians as a whole. Right. From an Army perspective, our task force commander, I was out there with 1st Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment, and the commanding officer very clearly stated as we were getting ready to leave, and we were there for about three and a half, four weeks, and he stated very clearly as we were getting ready to leave that the big stain that we saw on the Red River floating downstream, that stain was the stain of Somalia. Hmm. And the disgrace, the negative impact, the lack of confidence that the Canadian public had in the Canadian military, not just the Army, I think the military, the Army in particular though, that because we had stepped up in the largest military operation since the Korean War and performed superbly, that the Canadian public started to gain a measure of respect back for the military because of what had happened in Somalia, that people started to recognize that it was a rogue few as opposed to the army. Yes, definitely. And when the army had to step up, we performed admirably. So that kind of stands out in my mind. Right. I did a peacekeeping tour in Bosnia in 2005. I was there with U4, the European Union force. We had just ended Op Palladium, which was the NATO mission. Right. I was okay. there as part of Op Boreas. We spent a lot of time going around and poking organized crime in the eye with a very sharp stick. <laughs> it was great fun, I must admit. There were eight Canadians living in a house out in a village called Sansky Most. We had a British AM crew with us because we were 45 minutes by air from our closest support. And our job was to go out and collect information and relay that information back up the chain of command. And whether that was talking to the local police, the local military units, local politicians, going to the farmers' markets and just talking to people, we would gather information and feed that back up through the food chain, as it were. The other thing that we did is we would go out and check on logging sites. Logging in Bosnia at that time was about a $4 billion a year industry. Oh, so, yeah of which $2 billion was illegal. <laughs> so things kind of got a little interesting a couple of times when we came across a couple of illegal logging sites. Kind of made the hair on the back of your neck stand up right. a couple of times, but it's all good fun. That was a very rewarding experience, again, because you were helping people that were coming out of a civil war. There wasn't really any armed conflict between the entities. But there was certainly a lack of government structure, organized structure, and we were helping to build them back up. So that was rewarding. There are numerous isolated little incidents along the way where you look back and you say the presentation of New Colors in 1991, yeah, that was great. 1984, when the Queen was here and we did the official welcome for Her Majesty when she came to Queen's Park. And then 
I'm trying to remember who had their new colors presented to them at CNE Stadium. Somebody got their new colors, and for the life of me, I, I want to say the Queens York Rangers, but I'm not sure if that's right. But certainly being on parade with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, with the engineers, the artillery. So those are moments that kind of stand out in your mind. There are some other moments that are a little more painful to remember, but they're memorable nonetheless. In 1983, a corporal by the name of John David Jones was killed in Toronto. He was a 48th Highlander. Now, he wasn't killed on duty. Right, okay. He was killed in an incident in town. But I remember the shock of that, that that was, that was memorable. Yeah, definitely, without a doubt. It certainly sent a real shock wave through certainly the junior ranks mass and the regiment that maybe we are involved in a bit of a dangerous business here. <laughs> now, like I said, he wasn't in uniform at the time, but right. it certainly was a bit of an eye-opener, a bit of a wake-up call. So I think it was 1983, might have been 84. I can't right. remember the exact year. So stuff like that, been memorable. Got to meet some pretty interesting people along the way. Yeah. The governor general, lieutenant governors, minister of national defense, myself and General Stafford got to throw Mr. McKay off of Rappel Tower in Meaford <laughs> a couple of years ago. That was a bit of fun. So there's been a lot of them that kind of stand out. But I think the opportunity to really help people in their time of distress has been one of the most memorable moments. So, Bill, you told me about accomplishments that you achieved as a team. Are there any specific individual accomplishments that you're particularly proud of? Actually, there are, Mike. Being a member of a team is critically important, especially in the Army. No one really operates in isolation. We always operate as part of a team. One of the things that I think floored me when I found out on a very personal level in terms of an achievement was when I was awarded or made a member of the Order of Military Merit. Right. That completely caught me off guard. When I look back on it, I had been a member of various honors and awards boards and had recommended others. And I remember getting the phone call from the deputy commander of LFCA, and it was Colonel Jay Claggett at the time. Right. And he had called me and said, I need you to give me a call, but I was tied up at my civilian job. I called him back. He was tied up, and we started playing phone tag, <laughs> And as does happen. And one of the messages was sort of, don't talk to anybody until you talk to me. And we had soldiers in theater at the time. Oh, right, yeah. Including my best friend. I was the best man at his wedding. He was the best man at my wedding. So these thoughts start creeping into your head. Mm -hmm. And then you're thinking, well, no, it can't be that because I haven't gotten any bell ringers on my BlackBerry. So I don't think it's that. So I really have no idea what it could be. And you're trying to wrestle to figure this out. And when I finally got him onto the phone, he said, have you talked to Chief Warrant Officer Stapleford? And I said, no, he's in the office right across the hall from me. Now, Stan Stapleford was the area sergeant major. Right. And he said, oh, good, you haven't talked to him yet. And I'm thinking, what is going on? And he says, you've been made a member of the Order of Military Merit. And anybody that knows me kind of knows that I like to talk. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I freely admit that. I was gobsmacked. Yeah. I was just, I was stunned. That was the last thing that I ever expected to hear. I'm very flattered that I was recognized for it. And I think that it goes far beyond just what I managed to accomplish. I'd mentioned earlier about being in a clique with soldiers that are professional and dedicated. I was extremely fortunate throughout my career that I was surrounded by excellent NCOs. 
I had good officers that provided good direction and guidance, issued sound orders, and made it actually pretty easy to do my job. Right. So I was quite fortunate that way. And I think I sort of make the comment that I wear that award, but part of that is a recognition of the work and the efforts of the soldiers around me. Absolutely. That's my opinion. Yeah, and we'll have a chance to talk about them in your influences and memorable characters when that question comes up. Yes, absolutely. Now, you said a specific word when you were describing your BlackBerry. What's a bell ringer? Just sum it up, essentially. Okay, a bell ringer is it's an email that you get that comes across the BlackBerry network, and the intent behind it is, is it's almost like being in a fire hall or a police station. This is an emergency phone call. This is an emergency email. There is something critical has happened that you need to be aware of immediately, right away. Right. Now, some of those are emails that you yourself have to action. Some of them are emails that are for your reference. When you get to certain positions in the chain of command, It's unlikely, but you never know. Somebody might put a microphone in front of you with a camera and you don't want to sound like, I don't know. Right. You want to be in the know. The other thing is that your troops are going to start to ask questions. Right. Soldiers are some of the smartest people I know. (laughs) Sometimes in a very good way, sometimes in not so good ways. But soldiers are very smart people and they can figure out when things are going on. And they look to their leadership for answers. Certainly. And it's important that we have them. Yeah especially when they have friends in theater. Yeah, absolutely. So that is a bell ringer. (laughs) There we go. Please come back for part two of the episode with Chief Warrant Officer Bill Darling. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at MikeLacroixCMHP at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.CanadianMilitaryHistoryPodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. NTAG music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike LaCroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike LaCroix Production.